And Obadiah is uh, the shortest book in the Old Testament. Uh, I still remember when Gracie was learning her song for Awana. Uh, it was uh, uh, Joel Amos Obadabio, and uh, it was like really, really cute. Um, and so I, every time I say Obadiah, I say Obadabio in my mind, and probably always will. But um, anyway, thank you all for coming back tonight. I'll have the Obadiah sheets uh, for you next week. The copier also has been on the fritz, so <laughs> we're just uh, uh, in one of those seasons. And so uh, I got the front page printed, but the back page wouldn't print. And so we'll, we'll have those for you next week. But um, Obadiah... Uh, will be a, it's a short book, so we'll have a, a shorter message tonight, which I know will be uh, will be okay with you. But we will spend some time at the end in prayer because uh, I think that's an appropriate call to to uh, to give at the end of Obadiah, and particularly with the message. Um, there was a a 67 year old woman who was going in for a routine cataract surgery. I know I know many of you in here, or some of you in here, have, have experienced that. She was experiencing some dryness and discomfort in her eyes, and uh, so as the anesthetist, I knew I was going to struggle saying that word. I hate that word. The anesthetist began to numb her eye for the surgery. He noticed something odd in her eye. He pulled up her right eyelid. And he noticed a big blue clump. Having never seen anything like this before, he stopped. He called everybody over. And uh, there was was basically this big blue mass. And they started kind of trying to... And this may gross you out because eyes and all that. But they started trying to figure out what it was. They found out that it was a clump of contact lenses. And so they began to try and just pull them out one by one. And 27 contact lenses later, they finally figured out why she was having the dryness and discomfort in her eyes. She had worn disposable contacts for over 35 years. And sometimes when she tried to remove her contact, she, she just couldn't find it. It'd get kind of lost up there in the top of her eye. And so she figured she just dropped it somewhere. It had fallen out, so she just put another one in. And... Who knows for how long this had happened, and I imagine that, I mean, I can, I just, that makes me uncomfortable just thinking about it, because uh, you can always feel it. I mean, that had to be some, 27, that had to be some intense pain, and who knows how long she dealt with it. But um, I recognize that going through the prophets like we have, it feels like that kind of just uncomfortable piling on, you know? I mean, it's just, the prophets, they're dealing with such uh, gloomy and... Uh, and, and in some cases, terrifying topics that it is a struggle to kind of go through them. And so uh, we've actually, we're coming to the end of the prophets, if you can believe that, over the next few weeks. And so we want to, uh, to, to, to just take some time to recognize the specific uh, contours of the message that they have, uh, they've, they've added to the Old Testament. Um, the fact is, is that God has given a clearer and clearer picture in the midst of the piling on of the, the major and minor prophets. He's given a clearer and clearer picture of how he's going to deal with man's sin, how he is going to send his suffering servant to do what Israel could not do, how he was going to remove the heart of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh, how he was going to create a regenerate community. We saw that last week in Jeremiah and how he's going to judge all of the nations on something called the day of the Lord. And that's a theme that the Old Testament introduces and develops in the prophets. And uh, the prophets all fit together in, in a very specific way. You know, we talked about there being the five major prophets 
And, and Mark Dever, who's the pastor of Capitol Hill Baptist Church in Washington, D.C., he notes that there are, there are themes to the major prophets. So Isaiah, the theme is Messiah. Uh, Jeremiah, the theme is justice. Lamentations, the theme is justice up close and personal. In Ezekiel, the theme is paradise. And in Daniel, the theme is survival. But then the minor prophets, uh, you may or not, may not be aware, but the minor prophets are actually all one book uh, in the Hebrew Bible. There were 12 minor prophets, and they were all uh, put together and were meant to be read together. Uh, so they're, they're actually, the, in the Hebrew Old Testament, they were doing it differently than, than the way we're doing it. We're doing it in chronological order. And so they actually put them all together, and Mark Dever sees a pattern there. He says that the minor prophets, I'll just mention the ones that we've gone through, they, they highlight questions that these prophets, their message seems to answer. And so for Hosea, what is lo- real biblical love? And Amos, does God care about what I'm going through? Tonight we'll see in Obadiah, does God have enemies? In Jonah, can you run from God? In Micah, what does God want from us? In Nahum, who's in charge? In Habakkuk, how can I be happy? And in Zephaniah, what's, what is there really to be thankful for? In all of these different kind of ways, the, the Old Testament prophets, they tell us a very specific message. And so we've made a lot of headway, and as of tonight, we're 28 messages into the 39 books of the Old Testament. Next week, we will have a morning and evening service where we'll journey through Daniel and the book of Joel. Then uh, Philip will take on the book of Ezekiel to round out the major prophets. That'll be the, the final one of the major prophets in a couple of weeks. And then coming into August, we'll deal with Israel seeing God fulfill his promise to guard them and bring them back. You remember we saw that last week. The, uh, God told Israel that uh, through Jeremiah they'd be in exile for 70 years, right? And so uh, we will begin to get into those books where we see God just miraculously fulfill his promises. The books of Esther, Ezra, Nehemiah, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. And finally, we will hear Nehemiah and Ezra set the tone for a new generation of Israelites as they rebuild Jerusalem and the temple in the book of First and Second Chronicles. You may or may not have known that, but in the Hebrew Bible, First and Second Chronicles comes at the end of the, of the 39 books of the Old Testament. And the reason for that is that First and Second Chronicles are generally thought to have been put together by Ezra and Nehemiah as a way to speak to them, saying, uh, uh, giving a warning, saying, let's not make the same mistakes that our predecessors did, that our ancestors did. And so in that way, it's kind of the same warning that Paul gives us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 to learn from the Old Testament so that we don't fall prey to the same uh, temptations or the same uh, snares that they did because 1 Corinthians 10 tells us that no temptation has seized us except that which is common to man. And so since Satan has no new strategies, if we can, if we can read the Old Testament and learn the, the snares that, that Satan put out for the people of God, then we can actually be prepared, for, prepared against a, uh, or prepared to fight a battle in a very uh, strategic way. And so this warning that we're going to receive tonight from Obadiah, the question that, that we're going to answer is, who are God's enemies? If you're a Muslim, you'll answer that question a very specific way, namely Israel and America, if you're a certain type of Muslim. If you're a Hindu nationalist, um, you will answer that in another way. If you were maybe uh, a Revolutionary War era uh, uh, um, 
uh, early American, you would you would maybe uh, maybe say that Britain or or England was uh, an enemy of God with the the tyranny that they had executed upon the colonies. And so, at different times in history, people have tried to identify the enemies of God. But for us, the the question takes on a different tone because when we ask the question, who are God's enemies, what we're going to see tonight from Obadiah is it's the same thing as asking, why did Israel fall in the first place? Or why did Adam and Eve fall in the Garden of Eden? Or what was the first sin ever committed? The sin that they say uh, that uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3 says that is the sin of Satan himself. All of these answers have the same, or all of these questions have the same answer, and that is, Pride. Pride is ultimately any act or belief that puts yourself in the place of God. And in the book of Obadiah, we see evidence of the reality that God opposes the proud with great might and intensity. And so who are God's enemies? Obadiah is going to answer that question. Those who live with pride in their heart. And this, this comes to the forefront even to the news uh, this past week, and I can't remember if it's the, the guy who is the dictator of Venezuela or the Philippines, uh, but basically it's Duterte is his name, but he stood before uh, his people and he said that he would resign if anybody could prove to him that God exists. He was basically mocking God. And, I, and, and like some of you, you hear that and you're like, that's bad. Like that's not a good place to be, right? And we recognize that because... That is a rebellious act of pride against a God who holds your very life in his hands. And Obadiah is going to directly confront that kind of attitude and that kind of sin in, in the, the hearts of a specific people group. And so let's first of all, let's look at Obadiah the prophet would be the first bullet point here. And like I said, I know I don't have notes on the screen, but you can kind of follow along in that way. Uh, There are 11 people named Obadiah in the Old Testament, but we really have no idea uh, who Obadiah the prophet was. We don't, it's not, it's not told to us like it is with other prophets where he lived, where he was, um, where he was preaching from, where his hometown was. It doesn't give us any biographical information. All that we know is that he wrote these short series of judgment poems against Israel's neighbor, the people of Edom, E-D-O-M, Edom. And so that leads us to ask, who are the Edomites? Uh, the Edomites were a people that shared a common ancestry with Israel. I told you all about that this morning, that Abraham and Sarah had Isaac, right? And Isaac married Rebekah and had a set of twins whose names were... Anybody? Jacob and Esau, that's right. And so... Uh, Needless to say, their relationship, if you've read uh, that part of the book of Genesis, their relationship was tense, to say the least. Esau was an impulsive uh, hunter who uh, despised his birthright and sold it to Jacob for a pot of stew. Jacob, whose name literally meant what? Who, who remembers what his name meant? Deceiver, that's right. Jacob, Jacob's name literally means deceiver. This man conspired with his own mother to deceive his dying father. Okay, so if God can use Jacob, there's like hope for any of us. Okay, I mean that's horrible. That just that's like a that's like a bad Netflix movie. I mean that that's horrible. Uh, I mean to to dress up like your brother because your father's blind so that you can steal his blessing. That's just horrible. And so Jacob's family and Esau's family came to clash after that particular experience. 
And Jacob's family became known as the Israelites, and Esau's family became known as the Edomites. And they lived near each other. They were neighbors. Uh, Israel had Canaan, right, the, the very rich and lush land of Canaan. And Edom was to the south of Canaan in the mountains of Seir, S-E-I-R, near the Dead Sea. And so let's look at Obadiah's message, and you'll see some of these things come out in Obadiah's language. We're just going to read all the verses, all 21 verses, since this is such a, such a short book. And so it begins uh, very concisely, the vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom, We have heard a report from the Lord, and a messenger has been sent among the nations. Rise up, let us rise against her for battle. Behold, I will make you small among the nations. You shall be utterly despised. The pride of your heart, you can underline that word pride, that's kind of the key theme of the book of Obadiah. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, noting their high place, and their lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you would have been destroyed. Would they not steal only enough for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasures sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of, the Mount, out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be, be dismayed, O Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stand aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother and the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of distress. And if you want to put an asterisk beside uh, verse 15, verse 15 is the transition point, the hinge point, where things change. Because now he goes to talking about the nations. For the day of the Lord is near upon all nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they've never been. But in Mount Zion there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy, and the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire. And the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them. And there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negeb shall possess Mount Esau, and those of Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines, and they shall possess the land of Ephraim and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sepharad shall possess the cities of the Negeb. Saviors shall go up to the Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. And thus ends the book of Obadiah. 
And so, as I mentioned earlier, uh, Obadiah has two halves, verses 1 through 14, and then verses 16 through 20, with verse 15 being the transitional point. So verses 1 through 14, uh, the nature of Obadiah's words themselves, uh, it actually lends itself towards being written after the Babylonians have conquered Israel. That's why we're doing it in this, in this specific uh, uh, chronological order after the book of Lamentations, because it seems like that as the Babylonians came in to conquer Israel, the Edomites uh, looked down from their lofty mountain and saw the Babylonians conquering Israel and said, well, we'll take a piece of that. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go in, and it, it points out very clearly that they actually uh, came in and just plundered and left nothing. That's in verse 5. It says, if grape gatherers came to you, would they not have leave, not leave gleanings? I mean, if, if, a, if a combine goes through a field to get uh, a, you know, a certain amount of harvest or certain kind of harvest, it's going to leave some stragglers behind, but not the people of Edom. They're going to they're take everything. They just, like locusts, they just devoured everything. And then they actually uh, would not take refugees. Verse 11, they stood aloof on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates. And, and they cast lots for Jerusalem and you were like one of them. They, they gloated over the misfortune of the people of Israel. They actually, um, they actually cut them off when they were trying to escape. When they were running from the Babylonians, the, the, the commentators say that the Edomites apparently uh, pillaged the treasures of the people fleeing from Israel, uh, from, from Jerusalem, so that basically taking advantage of their misfortune. And so in their pride and contempt, they looked down. You see that in the first several verses. Uh, it says, it says in verse three, the pride of your, well, it says, uh, it says, uh, the pride of your heart has deceived you, you who live in the clefts of the rock. So you get this idea that they're in this lofty dwelling, but they're doing the same thing in their hearts. They're saying, well, just like we're living above the Israelites, we are superior to the Israelites as well. Our geographical position is reflective of our superiority. And they were compared to the, to the eagles. And that's why some uh, commentators call these the eagle Edomites. They were, they were just these people who were high and lifted up, it seems. Their nest was among the stars. But basically, the mighty will fall from their lofty place because the Lord, just as he humbled Israel, he will humble Edom as well. And so uh, in other prophetic books... Israel's neighbors, if you remember specifically in the book of Isaiah, it was almost like uh, God painted a target and he dealt with the nations and he just zoomed in and focused on Israel as the center point of his target. And so Obadiah just points out one of those nations and deals specifically with them because they're like family. They have the same lineage. And in verse 15, he talks about the fact that Edom is an example of of how God will bring all nations down during something called the day of the Lord. In verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As, as you have done, it shall be done to you. So as you have, have brought people low and participated in their destruction, so God will participate in your destruction and he will bring you down. And your deeds shall return on your own head. The prideful nations will fall from their prideful heights and come to ruin. Obadiah sees Edom's pride as an image of how God will one day confront the pride of all nations and bring their fall too. And he talks about the fact that one day, specifically in verse 19, that God will, this is one of the things that, that Obadiah adds to the message, 
uh, of, of God in the Old Testament, that God is bringing a, a kingdom. And in that kingdom, the people of Israel will go again, once again, and possess the land, right? And that's what it talks about, uh, that uh, all of these different things, thou shalt possess the land of Ephraim, the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Edom will be brought low, and Israel will, will regain their portion. And as God restores his kingdom, he will populate it with his faithful remnant, those who are the opposite of prideful, namely those who are humble. And so that's the message of Obadiah in a nutshell. But in that message of Obadiah, there's a message for all of us. And that's where we want to just settle in for a few minutes uh, here tonight. Just as Edom was warned of pride, so also we need to be warned of pride as well. Pride is a sneaky adversary. And so we want to think about how pride and humility are really the only two responses to God's provision of Jesus, which we talked about this morning. That's the, that's the baseline for us all. When we stand before God one day, we'll be asked that question, what did you do with Jesus? The prideful heart says, I've got this in life. I'll do this on my own. It says to God, maybe not directly, but implicitly through the way that, they, that people live, I don't need your definition of life. I don't need your definition of my spiritual condition, God. I can make my own way. And so, many, so many times we, we hear the Frank Sinatra song, My Way. If you just think about that, the, the, there's, while, while there's a certain kind of uh, moxie you know, that, that Frank Sinatra had as he sang that song, really the heart of that song is is this heart of pride and arrogance and self-sufficiency. And if a person decides to choose to operate in that way of life, then God will honor that choice. And that's a very scary thing for us. God will not impose His will upon us. God gives us a choice. And if we choose to live in pride, then as we stand before Him in judgment one day, we will have no other option than to present our own deeds before Him and hope that they're good enough. But since they are tainted with sin, he will say those words that, that should strike fear into us. That, Depart from me. I never knew you. And so pride is the fleshly response to the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel of faith. The gospel of alien righteousness. You see, pride is a gospel. Pride embraces a gospel of, uh, a gospel of self-righteousness. I am the standard of all things. And we see that manifesting itself in our society with this idea of uh, John Stone Street from the Colson Center calls it, uh, calls it the new Gnosticism, right? That what I am, I determine and nobody else can tell me what I am. I self-identify. And whatever that looks like, that's my job to do. It's, not, it's nobody else's job. It's not your job. It's not God's job. It's not the Bible's job. It's not anybody's job but me to define myself. That is in our day, in, our, in the generation especially that is being raised up, that is pride. And it's the same thing as Duterte, the dictator, saying, saying somebody prove to me that God exists and I'll believe in him. But if, but if, if nobody's going to prove that he exists, then I'm not going to believe in him. This kind of Gnostic idea of self-identification is prideful at its very core. And sadly, many people will stand before God one day, and because of their pride, they will hear from Him, depart from me. But humility, on the other hand, in contrast, says, 
I can't do this. I need someone to stand in my place. I've broken everything and I can't find my own way. God, help me. These humble cries of faith are the birthplace of salvation in the New Testament. And those who embrace this lifestyle, this this profession of faith, this humility, will say with the hymn writer, when they stand before God in judgment, nothing in my hands I bring, simply to the cross I cling. That is the essence of saving faith. And the Bible tells us that those who cling to that profession will hear from him, enter the joy of your Father. You see... There are two contrasts, pride and humility. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And so how do we, we know that the gospel response of faith is it begins with humility. But how do we nurture humility in the Christian life? So if pride is on one extreme and humility is on the other extreme, the pathway to humility is self-examination. The pathway to humility, to nurturing humility, is self-examination. J.I. Packer compares self-examination to a conversation with God about your own sinfulness. This is what he says. He says, what God knows about our sins, we need to know. We need to know too, so that we may repent and ask pardon for whatever is given offense. The true Christian will not only seek to find and face his sins through self-examination, but will labor by the Spirit to put to death the deeds of the body, that is, the habits of the old sinful self, in all his days. And so this is is how I would like for us to end and how, how we need to respond to this message warning against pride. If you remember Wilson Green, uh, here several years ago, a couple years ago, with Life Action Ministries, the whole premise of the, of the conference was God calls us to be humbled. And it would be much better for us to humble ourselves rather than to have God humble us. All right? Do you remember that? And I, I, I remember him saying that, and the, the natural response is just like, well, yeah. <laughs> it would be much better for us to humble ourselves than to have God humble us. And so just in the last several minutes of tonight, what I want us to do is I want us to cry out with the psalmist. And if you if you want to turn to Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, I'm going to get Philip just to come play uh, for us as we as we enter a time of invitation and self-examination and reflection, because I want you to make this your prayer. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24, you're probably very familiar with these verses, and I would encourage you if to, to write these down somewhere where you can ask them of the Lord often. Commit it to memory so, that you, can, so you, that you can speak it to the Lord often. Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Here is the starting point of self-examination which leads to humility. The starting point of steadfastness in the Lord Jesus and in walking on the path of life. Verse 23 says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any grievous way in me. And lead me in the way everlasting. Maybe that's something that you pray often. I hope it is. But tonight, let's take a moment and let's pray it with freshness. Recognizing 
the way God opposes the proud that we've seen in Obadiah, we, we, don't, we don't want that path. Therefore, as a church family, as individuals, we must humble ourselves before the Lord and ask Him to search us, ask Him to reveal any grievous way within us so that we can see the path of life that He's laid out before us. I pray that that's your desire tonight. And so let's take a few minutes, and Philip's just going to play and sing over us and make Psalm 139, 23, and 24 your prayer. And then I'll close this here in a few minutes.